Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, for the second part of our sit-down with consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Ajay Verma. In the last episode, we talked through the approach to an examination station of inflammatory bowel disease, and we talked through some of the differential diagnoses for the symptoms they often present with. This episode, we're having a comprehensive chat through the investigations and management, including the medications used to induce remission, as well as what the gastro teams use as maintenance therapy. As always, we love to hear from our beloved listeners and you can get in touch with the show via the Twitter at Prepaces Podcast or via our website prepacespodcast.com. But without further ado, let's listen to the rest of our chat with Dr. Ajay Verma. So moving on to the investigations of these patients, the examiner is going to expect you to give a, a shortened version of this to the patients. But then importantly, in your presentation, you're going to have to explain to the examiner what you're going to do in terms of working up a patient with suspected inflammatory bowel disease. So Ajay, what are the important aspects that the listeners need to be telling the examiner about when they come to explain their investigations to the examiners? Yes, so um, obviously the beholden to the physician is our blood tests and then the standard workup of your the full blood count, you're looking at your CRP, you're looking at use and ease, and you're looking at liver function tests, so I think it would be important because the association of IBD and, and, and liver disease. Um, and then it, it's, it's kind of other things that are worth mentioning. So a CDX screen, it, it, it's the best way to do that is via blood test. Um, and and it's, I think it's really important to mention haematinics here, B12, um, folate and ferritin. And, and it's really important that those are checked. Um, would you suggest anything else? Would you suggest a TPMT? I think you could. But actually, I, you know, as an examiner, I, I wouldn't mark you down for not mentioning it because that's more on once you've established the diagnosis. You know, we wouldn't do a TPMT on a workup. We would do a TPMT if we know we're going to give someone azathioprine. Other investigations, so you know, if there's a more an acute history, you'll want to do stool cultures, make sure they don't have anything else going on. If it's a more kind of benign history, so uh, the, the history is on the kind of lesser side, so more kind of nuisance type symptoms, you know, erratic bowel habit and, and, and cramping, 
but they're not desperately poorly, then a fecal cell protector is very useful because a normal fecal cell protectin would go against IBD, um, whilst obviously a raised uh, cell protectin would suggest you need to examine further. So those are the kind of initial examinations you could do. If it's more an acute history, we'd recommend an abdominal X-ray as well. Uh, so you've got your stool cultures, your stool tests, you've got your abdominal X-ray, and you've got your blood workup. And I think that's a reasonable first kind of uh, investigation as a workup. If we're talking about whether you're looking at suspect ulcerative colitis, you're talking more about endoscopy. A sigmoidoscopy would suffice because it is a confluent disease that starts distally. So I think that would be the right thing to say, look, we want to establish a diagnosis. Um, if you're looking more towards Crohn's disease, I actually think you're probably better doing more imaging. So either a, a CT abdomen and pelvis, if they're acutely unwell and you're looking for obstruction or perforation. But if, if it's someone who you've got a bit of time in an outpatient setting and perhaps even younger, then an MRI of the small bowel is, is a better test and also it's less radiation exposure. So if you've got someone who's 21, you may not want to put them through too many CT scans in their life at that age. So an MRI would help. Um, and I think that that is the key things, the, 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 the older fashioned things, the small bowel examinations, the follow throughs and the very minimus and stuff like that. They're really specialized things now and we don't do them routinely. A colonoscopy. So as a gastroenterologist, we don't always do colonoscopy straight away. We might do an MRI, but I think in a patient's exam, I think the important thing is, you know, to say we would do consider sigmoidoscopy if we think it's colitis. We would consider a um, MRI for a younger patient for Crohn's disease or a CT scan if we're more worried about them. In terms of colonoscopy, I would always say we would liaise with the gastroenterology team to decide whether colonoscopy is appropriate because colonoscopy itself is an invasive procedure. It has lots of associated risk and it's not the nicest test to have if you have active IBD. So I think that's a really good answer to say it's something we want to discuss with the gastroenterology team to see whether they think that's an appropriate test to do. Yeah, we completely agree with that. And and the other element of that, of saying you would then refer to the uh, expertise of the gastroenterology team is demonstrating that you also know your limits as a, you know, as a junior registrar, that you know that you're not going to have all the answers, which I believe is part of the marking criteria is knowing your limits and knowing when to defer for um, more expert help. So yeah, definitely, there's nothing wrong yeah. with saying that you would uh, defer and, and ask the, the appropriate team. Yeah, I, th I think just to clarify that, so you've got your workup, which you'll do as part of your paces and, and in real life. And then I think you'd say, you know, once we've got an established diagnosis or if there's any uncertainty or any kind of concern here, then we would ask the gastroenterology team. And, and you know, in real life and paces life, that is a perfect answer. And then moving on to the management of these patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Ajay. So we've already talked about working these patients up appropriately with the right investigations. And we think this patient has a diagnosis of either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So what are the common treatment strategies? And maybe we, you can uh, give us a bit of an idea about how this differs between UC and Crohn's. Yeah, sure, Sam. Um, so... Well, if we start with mild disease, so for Crohn's disease with mild disease, it may be a case of uh, giving uh, a treatment with budesonide. So budesonide is a, a steroid obviously used topically on the skin. It's very poorly absorbed out of the GI tract. Um, so you couldn't use budesonide, it's not used for asthma or um, in terms of a systemic treatment or, or kind of skin conditions or rheumatoid arthritis, but it's used more as a local treatment. And so by taking oral budesonide, 
uh, actually stays in the gut and, and works quite well on mild small bowel Crohn's disease. So that's one option with mild disease with Crohn's disease. But in reality, for the majority of patients presenting with Crohn's disease, the burden of disease they need to present, usually they're quite severe. So we're talking about steroids orally. If they're very severe and require admission, they need intravenous steroids. If there's sepsis around, which can be a problem uh, with Crohn's disease, be it perianal disease, fistulating, abscesses, collections, or even when we uh, investigate them, we sometimes see um, sealed perforations within the abdomen, then that needs to be kind of controlled first and managed. Um, and in extreme cases, we do get patients who come in uh, requiring uh, enteral nutrition. And, and that's a very effective strategy. It's often used predominantly for children who they don't want to give steroids uh, too much our pediatric colleagues. So enteral nutrition is a very effective um, uh, treatment for Crohn's disease, but not so much in adults because uh, the tolerance of enteral nutrition is quite variable. And then the biologic agents. So infliximab is something that we can use for very severe Crohn's as a presentation and adalimumab as well. So those are the kind of the treatments you would use to induce remission. For ulcerative colitis, the, the kind of same pathway. So for kind of mild disease, mesalazine is a very effective treatment, be it orally, uh, rectally as suppositories or enemas or a combination of the two. But the more severe the disease, and that's usually involved with the extent of the disease, you know, um, Proctitis could be managed very well with uh, rectal mesalazine, but if someone's got left-sided uh, colitis, they may need oral steroids. And if they've got extensive colitis, which is into the transverse colon, or pancolitis, which is the whole uh, uh, colon, uh, then often they need steroids. And for acute severe ulcerative colitis, in which um, you know, they meet the threshold of open the bowels more than six or eight times a day with blood and nocturnal symptoms, then uh, you know, a course of intravenous steroids and an inpatient admission may be required. Uh, we can use infliximab and cyclosporine for severe ulcerative colitis um, to try and rescue it or, or manage it. But just like uh, Crohn's disease, sometimes surgery is required. Um, for Crohn's disease, obviously, we're talking about resection of segments or drainage of abscess. But for UC, the only operation we would consider is a colectomy. Now, it's a very extreme step, and it's not one we take lightly, but it's actually a, a very effective treatment because, in essence, it, it cures the colitis. Um, so for some patients, it's a very good um, treatment. For the maintenance of treatment, um, once we've got them in remission, we don't like giving steroids uh, thereafter because the, the kind of gone are the days where we keep people on steroids longer term. The, the uh, longer term effect um, of steroids uh, is quite dramatic, as, as I'm sure everyone is aware. And if you ever get a chance, if you um, look in the BNF and look at the side effects of steroids, it's about three or four pages. It's quite frightening if you go through everything that's been reported on the yellow card system. So we very quickly try and go to a steroid sparing regime and we use uh, thiopurines uh, as a kind of first line steroid sparing long-term disease modifying agent. So azathioprine or mecaptopurine. Um, azathioprine is the mainstay. Some people don't tolerate that because it can give you, make you feel a bit flu-like and, and you can get pancreatitis with it. And if there's tolerance issues with azathioprine and away from pancreatitis, we can consider mecaptopurine. Azathioprine is cleaved in the body to mecaptopurine, so it's just um, another version of the drug, uh, but it's a lot more expensive. And then similar to kind of the induction of remission, we can use biologic agents to, for maintenance, uh, be it infliximab, uh, adalimumab for Crohn's disease. We've got vedalizumab, which is a gut specific agent that doesn't have the same systemic side effect profile. So the biologic agents have massively ex expanded. So 
for kind of paces exam i would say we induce re- remission in both conditions um with moderate to severe disease, ideally with steroids. And then we try and keep them off steroids longer term with thiopurines and then biologic agents. And surgery for extreme cases in Crohn's disease, be it um, perforations or, or collections or, or strictures. And for UC, for kind of refractory colitis, then a, then a colectomy. Fantastic. What a comprehensive run through of the medical management of inflammatory bowel disease. I've got to say, that is one thing which pretty much since the start of my uh, doctoring career and through medical school that was something I always struggled with and I think you've summed that up in a in a nice little you know few minute package so that's absolutely fantastic and then with regard to sort of conservative or supportive treatment for these patients um, as well as the medical management obviously the the supportive management of these patients is quite important as well isn't it yeah so you know having chronic illness uh, really affects people and it really affects their mind so uh, something that we should consider psychological support. Unfortunately, the funding of such within the NHS is very poor for inflammatory bowel disease, but often patients need need psychological support. So that's one aspect. The other thing that's really important, and I think we talked about uh, before, is smoking, um, trying to help patients uh, to, to kind of stop smoking as much as we can. Um, even in both conditions, I know there's a slight bit of controversy in the exam land about UC, but we'll never advocate smoking. We'd always advocate people come off smoking. And then you've got things like nutritional support. This is more of an issue with Crohn's disease. Um, you know, patients can be really um, uh, malnourished if they have severe Crohn's disease affecting their small bowel. And we have had to use enteral nutrition, nutritional support, you know, um, uh, 40 sips and, and, and the like, um, you know, which, which is an option. And then for very severe cases, uh, we've even given parental nutrition. Uh, and we rely very strongly with our nutrition colleagues within our specialty to guide us on that. Brilliant. Just, um, and just taking a step back again, you mentioned a few of the immunotherapies there, which, mm. are, which are, you know, some of the mainstays of uh, treatment. Before starting uh, your patients on immunotherapy, are there any uh, investigations which you often need to yeah. perform, perform before you then start them on those treatments? Absolutely. Um, so th- there's viruses we should screen for. So uh, hepatitis B and C is critical. Um, and the other one which is always forgotten about in any screening for any, any immunosuppression or anyone with sepsis, which is the indication is HIV. So um, HIV is a really important virus that people forget about, but it is an endemic virus. We're talking a lot about viruses uh, in the current pandemic, but HIV has been endemic for years, and it's really important we screen for that. Uh, The other thing, so anti-TNF is the perfect drug to allow TB to thrive. So we screen for TB doing quantiferon. Um, If there's risk factors such as ethnicity or they've been in prison or they've had treatment in the past, then we would do uh, things like chest x-rays. And if with Crohn's disease, you can get ileal TB, though I've only ever seen one or two cases. So we can take biopsies and do cultures of that, but that's actually pretty unusual. Um, Other things, herpes zoster, we we, we kind of screen for that. And um, if someone has not been exposed, then then we can give them... uh, a kind of vaccine for that um, and the other thing that's kind of come into fashion a little bit screening is uh, things like EBV so there's an association with uh, thiopurins and EBV and, and kind of uh, hepatosplenic t-cell lymphoma in young men but it was one of those things like in any specialty it became a real flashpoint people were talking about it for a lot 
for about one or two years, about a decade ago. And now it's kind of gone away. And even the, the most comprehensive recent guidance is still a bit vague about screening for EBV. Um, so those are the other things. The other thing that has now come in onto the block and then people might not realize is thiopurines, azathioprine, mercaptopurine. So going into your 60s, we, you know, we, we try not to use azathioprine because it does increase your risk of, of cancer. So we don't try not to start it. And if we've got patients who are in remission on azathioprine and mercaptopurine coming up to the age of 60, we try and stop that. Um, so if, if someone is over 60 and presents with colitis, for instance, then we may jump straight to a, a, a biologic instead of giving them um, a thiopurine just because of those risks. And so one of the things which is really important in these patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease is, is the complications. I know you've already mentioned a few throughout the episode. Yes. I, I wonder if you can just run through the, the complications of uh, both Crohn's and UC and then also of the, uh, you've mentioned already some of the treatments, but maybe you can just give us a good overview of sort of the whole condition and the treatment of it. So I'll go for UC because that's relatively straightforward. So with acute severe ulcerative colitis, we um, screen for things like toxic megacolon, and that's a precondition to perforation. So that's that's the kind of main thing. You can obviously have complications due to bleeding with with anemia, and and also all IBD, especially in acute severe, you, you've got an increased risk of thromboembolism. So this is a really key point here. If you're managing an inpatient on take with IBD, even if they've got profuse uh, kind of bloody diarrhea due to colitis, it is critical they have VTE prophylaxis, you know, TED stockings and uh, low molecular weight heparin, because that, even though the bleeding is visibly quite frightening, the risk of uh, VTE uh, supersedes that. And, and it's really critical you don't do that. That's for both Crohn's and UC. And the reason why is UC, a bit like Burns and nephrotic syndrome, is a protein-losing state. So when you're in a protein-losing state, the liver compensates by pumping out more proteins. And the balance of uh, coagulation means that in, in that kind of two, three-month period around a severe flare, you're much more likely to have a thrombosis. Uh, and you can get quite severe venous and arterial thrombosis. And we've seen those over the years. Um, longer term with UC, you're looking at things like colonic cancer, but that, that's driven by poorly controlled colitis over many years. So that risk has kind of waned over time because our treatments have got better, but it is still something that, that is there. And the problem is if you get um, what we call CAC, so colitis-associated cancer, they, they don't do very well because of uh, um, the, the presentation of the disease can be quite diffuse. With Crohn's disease, Sam, I could talk to you for three hours alone on, on complications of Crohn's disease. So <laughs> I, I will try and keep that relatively um, straightforward. So you've got the kind of perianal disease side of things, um, abscesses, collections, fistula tract, um, which, which can be um, quite um, severe and debilitating, um, affecting sexual function, confidence, etc. So it is really important that um, that is managed quite effectively. And sometimes we even have to do defunctioning surgery just to kind of give chance for that to heal or to um, be treated appropriately. In terms of, because Crohn's disease is a full thickness, um, a disease affecting the kind of all the layers of, of the, the small and large bowel, then you're much more likely to get strictures. You're much more likely to get fistulae between uh, bowel and small bowel, between bowel and bladder, between the bowel and the skin. All of these are very debilitating and difficult to manage, though anti-TNF treatments such as 
uh, infliximab has got the best results for things like that, as long as the sepsis associated with that is, is treated. Um, the other thing to just remember, and this is true for any condition with sepsis, um, treatments don't work if sepsis is persistent. So, you know, we can give nutritional treatments, you can give um, immunosuppression, but if you've got uncontrolled sepsis, you know, collections and the like, that, that ain't going to heal. So it's really important that it's managed uh, quite well. Uh, do you want me to talk about some of the treatment things as well in terms of uh, biological risks? Um, I'll quickly mention those, actually. So obviously there's the risks of infections and we, we um, uh, screen for those. But the really important thing is things like cancer and pre-malignancy. So it's really important if patients have got skin cancer or they're, they're at risk of skin cancer or things like cervical cancer or they've had lymphoma in the past, then it's important that we check for those things um, either at the time of starting treatment or monitor going forwards because there are kind of relative contraindications and risk. Um, being on immunosuppression, and you'll know this from transplant medicine, uh, your risk of skin cancer goes, uh, goes through the roof. Um, so it is similar to that to a degree with immunosuppression for IBD. So it's important you advise people, you know, to be, be sensible. Uh, what do they say in Australia? Uh, slip, slap, slop, you know, uh, uh, sun cream, uh, stick on a T-shirt, uh, pop, slop on a, you know, slap on a hat. It's really important that they're very, very um, responsible for skin care um, in the sun. Uh, so th those are the main things, I think. But uh, yeah, it, there's a lot to cover. And Crohn's disease, as I said, you, you can go to town with it. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. And just lastly, one of the things which often comes up in PACES is uh, the use of severity scoring tools yes. or, or any sort of application of a scoring tool related to a condition. So, so what can we use in these patients with inflammatory bowel disease? This is one of the nice things about uh, UC that we use the Trulov and Wits or a modified Trulov and Wits. And Trulov and Wits um, published their um, severity scores in, in the 50s, uh, 1950s. So it's coming up to 70 years old, but it, it's kind of been validated and it's pretty robust. So, yeah, Trulov and Wits is the main thing. I mean, it's basically the number of bowel motions. So some people use six, some people use eight, but kind of more than six is, is severe between four and six a day. Uh, and these are bloody stools. This, this is moderate and then less than four is mild. You've got uh, systemic effects. So whether there's a degree of tachycardia, you know, um, anemia, um, the amount of blood. So obviously the more severe the colitis, the more blood you'll pass. So the, the kind of children with worth looking up, that's a, a very good, good one. Uh, to kind of use and we use that and and the, the one other thing to mention is we monitor crp there, there is um some evidence that if your crp doesn't drop below 45 after three days of intravenous steroid treatment your risk of colectomy goes greater than 80 percent. so that's the kind of one fact that may impress an examiner if if they know that but hopefully you shouldn't have a gastroenterologist um uh, <laughs> examining you an ibd case for crohn's disease it's really quite interesting. There are things like the CDAI, Crohn's Disease Activity Index, but in reality, these are research tools and, and no non, or not many non-researchers use it clinically. And I think it's important to measure that Crohn's disease is, is almost like an umbrella term for many, many kind of complications of Crohn's disease, you know, nutritional, uh, stricturing, perforating, perianal disease. And, and I've actually got um, 
if you if you do get a chance to look at my, on one of my Twitter uh, gastro twirls, I've got a nice chart which shows the kind of seven, eight, nine, ten things associated with severe Crohn's disease and, and how just having one of them very severe makes your disease quite severe. So for instance, you, you know, you might not have anything apart from malnutrition, but if you're malnourished with Crohn's disease, then that is severe Crohn's disease. So I think when you mentioned uh, evaluating Crohn's disease, it's, it's kind of a, a global holistic assessment of nutrition, uh, anemia, bowel function, and sepsis. And that's probably a good way of, of looking at that. Perfect. Well, that is the end of all the questions uh, we had, which you could possibly be asked by an examiner in a PACES station of a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. So since we finished with the station, let's move on to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. Just a quick shout out to our podcast sponsors for this episode of the show. Within PassTest.com's catalogue of over 100 video cases, there are at least two different videos covering inflammatory bowel disease, both in a station one and a station five style scenario. So once you're finished listening to this episode of the show, head over to PassTest.com slash paces and sign up to get access to over 100 video cases. But for now, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Ajay Verma. And welcome to Quiz the Consultant. Now, this is the quiz where every consultant guest who comes on the show chooses a specialist subject of their own choosing, but it can't be related to medicine. And this is a quiz topic which I'm sure our football-loving listeners will be keen on. So, Ajay, you mentioned at the top of the show, what is your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? Um, So, I've chosen uh, Premier League top scorers. Um, I am... I'm football mad. I'm, I'm actually sports mad. So I, I probably could watch most sports at any time. Uh, and I used to love playing football until I've had knee problems where I've, I've kind of had to stop playing football. So I, I only play badminton, uh, but I love sports. But I, I've kind of got to, I'm, I'm going to let myself down here, Sam, but I've got a good memory for sports stats usually. So I'm hoping this serves me well. So yeah, that's why I've chosen that. And obviously, I think the Premier League is is a product that everyone loves to watch. And and as a big Liverpool fan, I'm, I'm loving the football for the last few years and, and with our great manager, Jurgen Klopp. So um, yeah, I thought I'd choose football top scorers and hopefully won't embarrass myself too much. No, I'm, I'm sure you won't. And actually, one of the other questions I had was, who's your team? And uh, yeah, I, I can imagine you've been loving watching Liverpool over the last couple of seasons. And um, something that you, you won't know, and probably most of the listeners won't know, is that I'm a football referee in my spare time. So it's something oh, that wow. I... Uh, so something that I uh, really enjoy as well. And and like you, I've had my share of knee problems, which has meant I've had to take a premature retirement, shall we say. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. This is a, something which is a real passion of mine and probably my uh, preferred pub quiz topic as well. So I'm sure you'll give a respectable account of yourself. And uh, one thing I should just uh, say as a disclaimer is that all, all the uh, stats that I've found for this quiz are since the introduction of the Premier League in the 92-93 season. So it's in the it's in the modern era. Don't worry, there's no anything coming up from the 60s or 70s or earlier. Okay, so the this is how we play. There are 10 questions. If you can get the answer first time without the multiple choice options, you'll get two points. But if you're not sure, you can ask for multiple choice options where I'll give you four choices. And if you get it after that, you get one point. Uh, okay. 
that helps a bit, I think, but let's see. <laughs> okay, so 10 quick fire questions on Premier League top scorers. Are you ready? Yes. Question number one. Starting hopefully nice and easy. Who is the top goal scorer in Premier League history? Oh, that's a good one. Alan Shearer, 260 goals. Uh, and you've preempted my second question, which is yeah. how many goals has he scored? So four points off the mark already from that first two questions. After you preempted it, fantastic. 260 goals. Okay. And question, so moving on to question number three now. Who has scored the most own goals in Premier League history? Oh, gosh. Um, if I have a guess and get it wrong, do I get a chance at the multiple choice? No. Is that you how get, it works? No, you, get ah. the mul- you, can, you can ask for the multiple choices or you can take a stab. So it's a, bit, it's a bit of a risk. Although I have been generous in the past and if people have sort of shouted out first time, then I've said, do you want the multiple choices? I think I know the answer, but I'm going to go for multiple choice. Okay. All right. You're taking the safe option, which is often the uh, most sensible one, I think. So... Um, the most number of own goals in Premier League history is it Jamie Carragher, Phil Jagielka, Wes Brown, or Richard Dunn? Uh, I, I thought it was Jamie Carragher. Um, he famously scored two own goals in, against United, in, in, I think, in the same game. Um, something says something about Richard Dunn, but I'm going to go for Jamie Carragher. Oh, Ajay, you should have trusted your gut. It is, it is Richard Dunn. But, oh, gosh. but Jamie Carragher was up there. Seven own goals for Jamie Carragher and, and ten for Richard Dunn oh, in gosh. his career. Well, he did play for City, didn't he? So, not surprised. <laughs> Before they had money. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Question number four. Which player has scored the most headed goals in the Premier League? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> It has to be between two. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. either Alan Shearer or it is Peter Crouch. I think just by pure maths, it has to be Alan Shearer, though I'm sure... No, you know what? I'm going to go for Peter Crouch. And that's correct. For two points, Peter Crouch with 51 goals mm. to his name from, from, his, uh, from his bonds. Absolutely correct. For two points. Okay, question number five. This is a slight, slightly different question. Can you name two of the five goalkeepers that have scored in the Premier League era? And if you can, if you can name one, I'll give you one point. If you can name two, I'll give you two points. Yes, I can. So I'll, I'll, let me go through my options and I'll give you two. So I know Peter Schmeichel, I think he did score one. And the other one, I think who uh, Robinson scored one. And then famously, the uh, best ever goalie scored ever was Alisson last season, where he scored a header, a winner, deep into injury time against West Brom to keep Liverpool's run going. So I'm going to go for definitely Alisson Becker for Liverpool. I'm going to go for Robinson. Yep, correct. Yeah, and Paul Robinson, correct. Two points. Did Schmeichel score one? Yeah, Schmeichel scored, and the other ones were actually, in, in honesty, I actually didn't put down Alisson, but I think I'm pretty sure he did, and I think I was looking at an old historic uh, stat, I think, So I, I'm, and I do remember Alisson scoring, so I think that is true. Um, and then Brad Friedel is the uh, is another one, and Asmir Begovic and Tim Howard are the other nice. goalkeepers. Fantastic. Question number six, which Premier League team has produced the most golden boots 
Oh my gosh. Okay, <clears throat> let's go through this sequentially again. So mm -hmm. if you look at the kind of top scorers of all time, so if you go like Shearer, Shearer kind of played for Blackburn and Newcastle. And so he, he didn't play for a big, big elite club. And then Henri did score a lot of goals, but he was only around for four or five seasons, uh, or six seasons, sorry, for Arsenal. So I don't think it's him. I don't think it's Arsenal. I might go counterintuitively for my, my club, you know, for Liverpool, because I think you've got Owen, you've got Fowler, you've got Salah. Yeah, maybe. I'm going to go for uh, Liverpool. Yeah, absolutely correct. Liverpool is right. And uh, yeah, you're quite right. So Michael Owen in the 97-98 and 98-99. Mm, he was 17 and 18 at the time. You know, mm -hmm. it's remarkable that a teenager... Uh, 17 and 18 or 18 and 19 got mm -hmm. two golden boots in consecutive years yeah and then you had Suarez in 13 14 yes. yeah yeah the madman yeah uh -huh. and then Salah in 17 18 and then Salah again in uh 18 19 and actually it was Salah and Mane were, were both joint in there yeah yeah well. yeah they were yeah I think 21 goals or something like that yeah, yeah. question number seven Thierry Henry won the golden boot in 2001 2 2003 4 2004-5 and 2005-6 but who won it in 2002-3 to interrupt this incredible run? I know this. It must be Van Nistelrooy. Correct. It's Rude Van Nistelrooy. Yeah, imagine that was the season where it went right down to the wire yeah. and um, Van Nistelrooy was on fire. I remember that. Absolutely correct. Question number eight. Only three players have won the golden boot for two different clubs. I'll give you, so similar to the last question, I'll give you two if you can name two and one if you can name one with the multiple choices. Golden boot with two clubs. Ooh. That is a really tough one, actually. Just trying to think of players who've moved around a bit. Mm. We've, we've mentioned a couple of names already of, of a couple mm. who, who have. Because there's a few players who've played for many clubs. You know, um, Cole, Andy Cole did play for a few clubs, as did Robbie Fowler, as did Nicholas Anelka, mm -hmm. as did Crouchy. Yeah, but it's got to, it's got to be winning the Golden Boot mm. in two different seasons at two different clubs. Wow. Uh, go on, give me the multiple choice. Okay. So, so only one of these is a correct answer. Sadio Mane, Robin van Persie, Nicholas Anelka, or Kevin Phillips. It's Van Persie, because he did it at United and Arsenal. Yeah, absolutely correct. It is Van Persie. And the other ones, uh, which you, you'd already mentioned, Alan Shearer did it for Blackburn and Newcastle. Mm, and Newcastle, yeah, yeah. I knew that as well. And the other, the other one is what I would call a, a real snorter. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Mm, Leeds and Chelsea. Absolutely correct. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Question number nine. The 100 Club is the name given to the group of players who managed to score 100 Premier League goals. But to date and in brackets correct at the time of recording how many players are currently in this prestigious club I'll give you three either way or one point for the multiple choice I know this spot on so it's 31 and it will soon be 32 because I think Sterling's on about 98 goals so it's 31 and the last two members who've joined are Salah and Mane absolutely correct for two more points and question number 10 
As you might expect, more English players have won the Golden Boot in the Premier League than any other nation. But which nation has produced the second highest number of different Golden Boot winners? Wow. That's a really good question. So the highest so, yeah, non-British no. winner, uh, yeah. in, in, the highest non-British goal scorer is Aguero. But I don't think he ever won the Golden Boot, you know. And then you've got Henri. So you, you're probably going to have to go for France just because of Henri. And then you've got players like Anelka um, floating around as well. Um, so just one so one thing oh no no i've got <laughs> oh, I, I know no, no, i know the answer to this no no i know actually it's holland because you've got van Persie, you've got hasselbank you've got van nistelroy it must be holland yeah absolutely correct so yeah it is the netherlands i wanted just yeah. to make clear before i uh, before yeah. you you committed that it was di- numbers of different golden boot winners not just the uh, having a yeah. player like yeah. Henri who, who scored uh you know one one five golden boots so that at the end gives you a final score of 18 out of 20 that's certainly a respectable score in my humble opinion and hopefully that's given some additional pub quiz knowledge for all of our listeners and a fantastic effort ajay and uh, thanks for playing along uh, no worries thanks i've enjoyed it yeah i didn't do too bad as well i was worried i'd like bomb out <laughs> <laughs> no not at all and Listeners, that is the end of the quiz, and it is just about the end of the episode. And we have been delighted to be joined by Dr. Ajay Verma, consultant gastroenterologist at Kettering General Hospital, who's been kind enough to give up his time and some of his expertise to help us discuss the approach to inflammatory bowel disease in the MRCP paces. So, Ajay, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. I've really enjoyed it. Um, just a little plug again for the, the gastro tools. There's loads of stuff on there. So there's actually some IBD ones, um, which are very useful because some of the stuff I talked about Crohn's disease is very ha- hard to kind of summarize. So there's some nice visual slides on there if you, if you get a chance to have a look. Yeah, fantastic. I'll certainly be heading over and having a look at those before my next general medical on call for sure. So listeners, if you like the podcast, please like and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch via the usual social media channels. And we really want to hear from you what topics you want covered on the show. So give us a tweet or give us an email. On Twitter, it's at prepacespodcast. And on email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. Podcast.